Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, an interview show all about art, craft, and creativity. Well, if you couldn't express yourself, how would you de-stress yourself? And if you couldn't make and build and sing, and knit and paint and dance and spin, would you go crazy? Well, if you're going crazy... Welcome to episode 201. This episode features a conversation with Marley Cook Parrot. Those of you who live in West Michigan, like I do, you probably know Marley. She did a lot of work up until very recently in this area as a community organizer, as a small business person. She organized SASFest and she did a lot of work with the DAC and promoting local musicians and artists. She's also a a dancer. She relocated to California not long ago, and we're going to talk about all that. But first, I'm going to back up and give you a little background information. Marley and I met about seven years ago when she was really busy establishing herself as an impressive community organizer and small businesswoman here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She was doing a lot of grassroots promotion of artists and musicians. One of the things that she started was a business called Have Company, and it sprung up as a mobile store in a restored vintage camper. And it was super cute, great concept. It was vintage goods, handmade goods, and zines. Then the business grew, and she moved into a storefront, kept the name Have Company, and pretty soon Have Company expanded once again became an artist residency and then a podcast featuring a lot of people that stayed at the shop. The back of the shop was a place for people to stay. She also hosted workshops there and just really, really a great community uh, resource for Grand Rapids. And then out of that, she kind of expanded into something else again. She has a dance degree, and we're going to also talk about that in the interview So she started posting videos of herself doing improvisational dancing every day. And she has a personal practice feed on Instagram. Doing that project, the daily posting of videos of herself dancing, took on a life of its own. That Instagram feed led her to create a self-published book called The Sacred Shift, a book about personal practice. And that book was then featured at the beginning of this month by the New York Times, So this has been quite a ride for her. I would encourage you to grab a project. And I want to thank all my Patreon sponsors and, you know, other supporters of this podcast and just the people who send email and just encourage me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for giving me the inspiration to keep doing shows like this. I really do appreciate it. Okay, so settle in, grab some tea and a project, and let's get to that conversation with Marley. What's your earliest memory of dancing? My earliest memory of dancing is I'm four years old. The first album I remember loving and loving dancing to was Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation. Janet was also the first concert, live concert I ever went to in the fourth grade. It's maybe safe to say that was mildly inappropriate. She's a pretty <laughs> wild, wild lady, but it, I mean, it was incredible. And this feels so mean now. I remember like coming home from like an Easter 
event or something and, and like immediately taking the like itchy dress off and just being in my slip and jumping on the couch and knowing every word to Rhythm Nation and singing along and dancing. And yeah, it was shortly thereafter that my parents signed me up for a dance class. I was super awkward and like couldn't really keep up as a small child, but <laughs> I, I already was dancing to my own rhythm, if you will. So yeah. So what kind of classes were you taking? You know, what kind of dancing were you doing? So there was a really incredible program that was um, Grand Rapids Public Schools linked up with the Grand Rapids Ballet Company to provide a program called Steps in a New Direction. And so it was a free after school program that I started going to. And this really incredible man, Patrick Johnson, was pretty much my first sort of dance teacher in like second, second or third grade. It was at campus elementary which I then lived up the street from as an adult. But yeah, I was sort of, yeah, it was sort of awkward and like couldn't really figure it out, but then slowly moved through that program and started taking classes at the Grand Rapids Ballet Company. And that was pretty much my story from being in their junior company and then in their senior company through high school as like a straight up ballerina kind of bunhead lifestyle. So (laughs) lots of nutcrackers, a lot of, yeah, the nutcracker every holiday season and point shoes and buns and lots of bobby pins did you enjoy being part of that or did it feel like the right scene for you or did you kind of feel a pull toward something else even then yeah you know it it really did i I really loved it i sort of have always resisted structure and so i think you know it took my parents a lot of sort of like forcing me to go to class when i when i didn't want to Mm -hmm. but and there was a little bit of you know, I sort of like developed, you know, curves and boobs and a body by 16 when a lot of my peers were, you know, really, really thin and flat chested. But so many of my teachers in Rapids were just really incredible and really supportive. And it wasn't a bad place to be a ballerina. There are some really bad places to be a ballerina. And it can, you know, you stare at yourself in a mirror for hours a day from age nine to 18 in a leotard and tights. And that's kind of like developed some, something strange has happened to you, I think, or something strange happened to me in terms of like critique of my body and how do I fit into other bodies? And, but you're like not really talking about that. But in general, I loved it. I loved being there. I loved dance. And then, yeah, it was my senior year. I had a friend audition for the musical theater program the University of Michigan and she told me about their dance program and I was like what? you can dance in college that hadn't even occurred to me because I wasn't you know I wasn't the most skilled ballerina by age 18 when some of my friends were like we're going to be professional ballerinas I was like well I'm definitely not you know I like knew I loved dancing still but I knew I you know wasn't I hadn't like taken it quite seriously enough or I wasn't like quite physically I don't know there's it takes a very specific body and type, et cetera, to be a ballerina. And that was not quite what I wanted to do. So it was a fast switch. I kind of like checked out the dance program at U of M and like immediately fell in love and was like, oh my goodness, I want to do this. And I auditioned and got in and that's sort of like the beginning of the next chapter. So what did you dance to, to audition? Oh my gosh, I danced to a Jocko Pistorius song, Portrait of Tracy. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> like instrumental kind of 
Yeah. And was it ballet that you, you did or did you do something that was a little more? University of Michigan is a, you know, is a modern dance, contemporary right, dance. Program. Right. And so I was just like, what? Uh, I think I made something up in my bed. I mean, I definitely made up a solo in my bedroom. Like I had no help from no, <laughs> like I don't think I told one of my ballet teachers. I just like made it up in my bedroom and like did it. I, you know, I was bare. I did it barefoot. Pretty sure I was wearing a leotard and had my hair in a bun, you know, but I think I, I don't, I don't think I got in on that solo. I think I, you know, was sort of accepted on like, I, don't, I mean, I don't know. I never asked, but some sort of like, they, you know, they did interviews and I feel like I was just sort of eager and open and it seemed like they took a little bit of everything. Maybe I was like the bun head they wanted at the time or something, but then I turned into <laughs> total weirdo quickly into my freshman year. So. And so how did that go then? So you arrive in Ann Arbor, were you living with other dancers or how does that work? Cause I know athletes get to live with other athletes, but um, what do they do with dancers over there? Yeah, I lived, I just lived in a regular dorm with other, yeah, I just lived in, I didn't live with other dancers. I just, I moved into it and quickly found like my two best friends who are still my best friends. And they, we were like the only maybe three or four girls out of 20 in our dorm who didn't rush a sorority like the first week. And it was kind of like, <laughs> you're weird, you're weird. Okay. You're not rushing a sorority. We have to now be friends with each other if we're going to survive freshman year. Um, <laughs> I did have sororities, no offense to people in sororities. That's awesome. It wasn't for me. Yeah. I, I kind of like got there and just immediately dove in and had really incredible professors my freshman year. Amy, Amy Shavas was, and is, you know, sort of one of my main mentors. And it was really beautiful. She, you know, arrived at U of M the same year as my freshman class. So we kind of like our, our class became, she was our advisor and she sort of like took our whole class under her wing and sort of, you know, we kind of like developed an aesthetic with her and yeah. And that carried me through those four years there. So. And so your degree is in modern dance then? Yeah. I have a BFA in dance. Yeah. I think a lot of times when people study the arts, whether it's a uh, you know painting or dancing, sometimes uh, there's a lot of creative, awesome creative things that happen in the classroom, but um, there's not always a lot of time spent on how to monetize that. Uh, if you're not with a company or joining a production of some kind. So what did you do after that? Gosh, that's a, wow. No one has asked me. These are really good questions. No one has, I haven't really dug into some of this. Um, so, I mean, this is a, par a part of my story that I think is important to share. It's a little, it's a little dark for those listeners who love the light part of the story, but you know, it's, the dark valley is a part of how we get to the mountainous peak, I suppose. But, you know, a lot of my story about the end of college was about, you know, really struggling with alcoholism. And you know, I, I did a lot of drugs and was drinking pretty much daily towards the end of my college career. You know, I just I sort of like skirted by I, you know, walked in graduation, but then had to keep, you know, I had to take another spring semester. And I pretty much just moved back to Grand Rapids because I didn't really know what I was going to do. I could, I could, I had tried to stop drinking and wasn't successful and I was dating someone in, in Grand Rapids. So I just, I kind of just like moved back and started serving tables. So the, the, the begin the transition was, you know, it was clunky and really difficult. And then 
I got I got sober in May of 2011, and have been grateful to have not taken a drink since then. But congratulations, you know that. Thank you. But that time in between, you know, graduating, you know, there's about a year of just sort of. Yeah, it was just, I mean, that's the the quickest way to say it it was was dark. But at the same time, during that time, I did move back and kind of jumped in with Dance in the Annex, which is a modern dance collective in Grand Rapids, which is sort of facilitated and run by Amy Wilson, who's a powerhouse of a woman. And, And yeah, Amy really took me under her wing and like gave me a lot of opportunities. But again, in that year of like kind of daily drinking and a, a lot of you know, being black, blacked out and not remembering things, you know, I sort of lost opportunities even within that structure that was hard. And those, you know, relationships were able to, you know, to be mended and I'm still active with them when I come back and I like to teach there and teach in the, in the at the annex at wealthy theater. But yeah, my, my transition from college to moving back home was definitely a, a rough one, but I'm glad that, you know, it got lighter when I got sober the problems with alcohol and drugs did that start in college was that something that happened in college or had you been struggling for years before that you know the first time i ever drank i was maybe 15 or 16 at, you know in high school and i like to tell the story that like the first time i ever drank i loved it i got wasted i blacked out and i like threw up on myself the next day and it kind of was like that then for the next six years, you know, I, I did, but in high school, I still had that, like, I have really liberal loving parents, but they were like still pretty watchful. And I was also super committed to dancing. And so I just had enough sort of like watching and commitment that I couldn't totally obliterate my life in high school. And then even college, I like, I was like, holy crap, like I'm at the university of Michigan. I have to focus. So it wasn't you know, my demise was pretty fast and quick, but it was, so it wasn't really until maybe I was, well, yeah, I guess I was like 19 or 20. So, um, you know, I quit drinking two weeks before my 23rd birthday. So, and I'm 29 now. So it was, it was, my drinking career was, it was just fast, I guess. The the crash was fast, which is, I'm grateful for in many ways. Yeah. And now you're, yeah, you've got things on, on track and you have years behind you now of having things on track. Do you become more confident in your just ability to to stick with this the more time you have that you've been able to just stay sober you know yeah I think in some ways yes and in some ways no you know I love the I've heard the line the farther away I am from my last drink the closer I am to my next one you know it's like sometimes uh you know you you know I've I'm grateful to have a lot of other sober people in my life and I've seen a lot of people die and in my, you know, my time, like the longer I'm around, the longer people decide to start drinking again, they don't, you know, they don't stay alive. And that's a real example to me. And I, but yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty, uh, big believer in the 24 hour a day system too. You know, I, I just, um, I'm grateful that I haven't drank since 2011, but you know, really I'm just grateful I didn't drink today. So that's, you know, a big part of my, of my recovery and my path. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm also like, I love going to shows. I love going, hang, I hang out with my friends at bars. You know, I'm lucky that I have a system in place that I can feel really fine in those times. But I definitely, you know, I, I went through a lot of transition last year 
and kind of got cocky, you know, it's like, Oh, I've been sober for five years. I can handle a lot of this. And I definitely needed a lot of, you know, extra help to not drink during, um, some harder times. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that I'm glad that you're okay. And I'm glad that you're, you know, being able to just create such beautiful art, despite, you know, all the even the rough times. So what did you decide you wanted to do at that point when you decided, okay, I'm going to stop drinking as far as your career was going and what you wanted to do, the art you wanted to make? Yeah, it was around that time that I start, I went to the first, uh, or I think it was the second year of the Chicago Zine Fest. And I kind of had my like life totally opened up. And at that time, I was also sitting on the board at the DAC, which stands for the Division Avenue Arts Collective, which is an all-ages music venue and gallery in Grand Rapids. And it was on Division Avenue at the time. And I also that summer got an internship with Jen at the Avenue for the Arts. And yeah, I just sort of like slipped into this place of kind of like being an organizer. And that was pretty much my life in Grand Rapids up until I moved a year um, little less than a year ago so yeah dancing kind of felt like a you know like a hobby and less of a job or like it was sort of project-based performance stuff and really getting involved in the avenue for the arts was huge for me because it gave me this huge access to spaces and collaborators and people to work with both as a dancer and as a zine maker and just as a human in in Grand Rapids so that was sort of like the next step that for me that happened. Marley, the community organizer, you know, I, that's, I met you in that, that stage of your life. And it was just, it felt like to me, I was just like, wow, this woman is so young, but she is really pulling together a lot of people to get a lot of stuff done. Did you feel at home doing that? Yeah. It kind of me all like tingly hearing you talk about it. I mean, I think it's also like, that was such a product to me of getting sober. Like I think I you know, I was just sort of met with this reality of, wow, I've been literally like numb to the entire world for the last few years. And then all of a sudden everything was so clear that I was just so excited and I just wanted everybody to be as excited (laughs) as I was. And And I really loved, I loved where I lived. I loved part of my story is, you know, I, I made a choice to stay in a, you know, a mid-sized city that I'm from and that a lot of people leave, you know, that Mm -hmm. I ended up leaving. But that at the time, you know, it was like, I want to make this place cool slash it already was cool. And I wanted to help everyone see that. So it was like, wait, if Rose is making rugs and Will's making furniture and this person's making zines and this person has this awesome vintage Etsy shop, why couldn't we just all be in a room together? And so that is sort of where SAS Fest was born, was just this open idea of could we have a fest that just sort of embraces and celebrates the DIY, the do-it-yourself and the do-it-together culture that was really thriving in Grand Rapids. So yes, I felt very at home doing that work. And if you want to explain to people what Have Company uh what that was and the whole concept and what it is now. Um, because I think you were just getting your trailer decorated mm-hmm. to have a mm-hmm. mobile shop at that point. Yeah. So have company is a project that I started in 2012. It started as a mobile shop in a camper 
and turned into a storefront on Division Avenue in Grand Rapids in July of 2013, and then it turned into a podcast and an artist residency in the same space, and it ended in October of 2016, and I kind of announced the ending of the project as a whole a couple, like a month ago maybe, but there are still two podcast episodes left that um, will come out in like a week or so. It's hard. It is so hard to let go of things. And I so often, like, I felt this way about, it feels similar to my marriage or to other things where they end and you know that it is correct for them to end. And in the, in the moment there's grief, but there's like so many layers of the onion that like continue to show itself like least expect it. And it was it just today I had this feeling where because I ended it because I sort of wanted to just focus on my own work because like we just talked about, it's been, you know, like seven years, six years of me spending so much of my life telling the stories of and supporting other people's work and other people's practice. But then today I was thinking about this event that's coming up here and I like want to have a table at it, but I want to have all my friends work on it. And I was like, Oh no, what will I call it? I was like, I shouldn't have ended have company. But (laughs) at the same time, uh, part of the reason why I ended it is it just, it did feel so tied to Michigan. And when I moved to California, it just didn't it, it just felt like it needed to get tie, tied up and end. I don't know if I tied it up very neatly, but it's over. I don't know if there's anything else you want to say about Have Company or time in Michigan. In Have Company, the physical space, I I literally start crying sometimes when I explain it to people because, again, it was on division. It was, on, you know, it was like I really grew up on that block, you know. I, you know, as a, I mean, my backstory is even farther. Like when I was 15, I started going to shows at Skeletones and at the DAC, you know, that's 14 years ago at this point, you know, that's a place that I went as a teenager and was like, Oh, I can be a weirdo too. I'm like getting choked up. It's like those, you know, those spaces were so important to me in a time where I was like, I feel like a weirdo. I'm like, I'm, I'm into weird stuff. I'm not, I'm not like a normal preppy person. And it was spaces like those that were like, that's okay. And you can have friends who are weird too. Right. And so then, you know, then I grew up to run the DAC and then I grew up to be, you know, Jen's intern on the Avenue and then to be a business owner on the Avenue was just, you know, it was, that was a really, that's a really beautiful part of the story is that I felt so held by those people and that place and really encouraged to have my space and my space, you know, it functioned as a retail space and I loved getting to have a place where my friends could generate income for themselves and sell their work. And then my friend, Michael Rodriguez eventually helped me run half of the space as a gallery. And the gallery really focused on, you know, pairing local artists with other local artists that were mostly showing their work at Heartside Gallery down the street, which is this incredible space that um, is a studio during the day and artists, many of who either live in the neighborhood or who are homeless folks or who have different developmental disabilities, um, can make art and sell it there and generate income for themselves. And I also was volunteer. I was volunteering there actually in 2010 before I even got sober and, you know, and continued to be a part of that space and ran writers groups there. And I just, that space is really close to my heart. 
literally my heart. I have a heart that Sarah Scott drew tattooed on my body forever because I love that space so much. It's, it's a magical so, space, yeah. really. It, there's magic that happens in that space. And so, yeah, I try, you know, I did my best to be a good neighbor and to, you know, I hosted artists from all over the country. They would come, they would live in the back for nine days. The whole backspace was this beautiful apartment and then they would teach workshops and oh my god talking about it is can be heavy but again it, it was it was beautiful and it was magical and I'm 29 and maybe you know maybe I'll move back in 10 years and do it again maybe I'll do it again here you know I like to think that just because one project has run its course doesn't mean I can't do it again a million times the short answer when people are like how could you give that up like why did you move is you know I was I was, you know, I basically got, I quit drinking in 2011 and two weeks later I met John who I then, uh, got engaged to at SASFest. He also helped run the DAC and then, you know, we got married in 2013 and in 2016 we decided to end our partnership. Um, which of course in the long run, we both feel really grateful about and we are, are, we lovingly communicate with each other still. And that's, powerful in a world where you hear that divorce is terrible and will tear your life apart. And it does tear your life apart. But I think I also just like, I wanted to leave the place that I had had that partnership in because so much of my, like really my entire sober adult organizing life was in within, was within that part, that part five year partnership. And so I basically was just like, okay, I don't want to see snow at least for one winter and I want to live where all my friends live. And so I had a lot of friends who lived in Oakland and I knew I wouldn't see snow there. And so that's where I went. And then I didn't like it. And then I found this magical rural landscape an hour north. And then I moved here and now I like it. And what, what, what didn't you like about Oakland? I didn't like living in a big city in the way that, um, yeah, I think something about that reminds me of here that reminds that reminds me of Point Reyes Station and Point Reyes and West Marin, this, this area is like the size feels like closer to Grand Rapids. Like, I don't think I really, really realized how much I loved the size of Grand Rapids, the size of Oakland was, I just kind of got there and was like, Oh, everybody kind of has it covered. Like they're like, the organizers are all here already. Like, and that's why I didn't leave Grand Rapids for so long. I was like, New York city doesn't need me. There's a million people there doing what I do in Grand Rapids. Like, Somewhere like Grand Rapids, like needs young, fun, not just young, but like just excited. It just needs excited people who are right. willing to put the work in. I wanted to break from putting the work in, but then I got to Oakland and was like, wait, I love putting the work in. And so I found this place where it's more, there's just a lot of artists and musicians and entrepreneurs who are doing really interesting and inspiring work here. And there's just a lot of room to sort of organize and invite people in. I think it's also just like I, if I ever moved back to Michigan, I would love to live on the lakeshore. I think I just, I like a quieter, slower paced land and landscape. And I feel really lucky to live in such a like rural, quiet place, but I still have access to the city. You know, if I want to go to a show or hang out with people, it's an hour drive to San Francisco. So yeah. I don't know if you want to talk about your, your project dancing daily. If you can explain a little bit about that, um, how it started in Pennsylvania and how it continued. You know, part of my story is I use the 
I used the phone app Instagram and I used that for half company. That's why I got an Instagram account and started taking pictures of things that I was selling in the store and of promoting the store and then promoting the residents and my podcast. And I just kind of, it was really intuitive to me to use in the way that like Twitter and Vine and like other things never made sense to me. But then Instagram came along and I was like, images, witty captions, good lighting. Like I can figure this out. And I think it really just resonated with people and they liked it. And, um, yeah, so I kind of gained this momentum on Instagram just with the Have Company account. And I and I all of a sudden I was like, oh, I could like film myself dancing. And I think I posted a few videos of myself dancing and could tell people were kind of like, why are you dancing? We just want you to tell us what <laughs> new ceramic mug is for sale. And I was like, ooh, that's that's fair. You know, what, what are you going to do? That is the thing about Instagram is that some people really want specific things from if they subscribe to a feed, they want it to be about like, okay, it's craft sanity stuff. Like, why are you talking about politics? Like what's happening? It's like, no, 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 we don't do that here. Yeah. (laughs) And you know, I have a lot of feelings about that because to me, obviously like the political is the personal and the personal was business. And so I could also, and it's important, you know, I, I identify as queer and I'm a woman and I'm running a business, like the, of course my politics are going to be wrapped up into a business where I'm like selling zines about radical herbal mental health. Like I'm, I'm, it's probably pretty obvious that I'm going to lean one way politically, (laughs) but at the same, at the same time, it was more like, I get that people didn't want to see dance videos. People were kind of wondering why is this woman dancing? When we just want to see, we just want to see the goods she's selling. That's it. That's all, you know, show us the vase, show us the clay pot. We don't want to see the rest of this. So what did you do at that point then? I have a really incredible friend named, I'd like to thank maybe two people publicly. One is sort of a a mentor and friend I have in Grand Rapids. Her name is Pam. And she had kind of suggested to me, like, you need just for like my own mental health and sanity. She had suggested I do something every day, even if it was for a few seconds. Like, why don't you just try dancing every day? And and my friend Mary Roethlisberger, who helped me sort of design the residency program at Have Company, she suggested, well, why don't you just have a separate dance account, you know, for dance or separate Instagram account for dance videos? So I kind of took that the, a little bit of that guidance from a lot of different people and combined it. And yeah, I started this Instagram account. I called it personal practice because that had like a nice ring to it. And sometimes I feel bad because that's like such a broad, like everyone has a personal practice. And now I've like kind of coined that term on accident. And so sometimes people will be talking to me and they're like, yeah, you know, and for my personal practice. And then they're like, I'm sorry. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This sentence that everyone should say. Anyways, I started to dance feed I was in Lancaster at the annual dance intensive I go to, and I was like, oh, this feels like a great time to just start this feed. I'm here. I'm documenting myself. And it was after like a couple weeks that I was like, oh, I think I've been doing this every day. And then I was like, maybe I should, that should be part of whatever this is, is I should just keep doing it every day. And then, you know, and I, I fed some of the followers from Half Company. I was like, hey, like if you're into the dance videos, you can follow them over here but it really just snowballed 
on its own, which has always been so interesting to me because, you know, I follow zero people. The point was never to like engage with an audience. It was just to sort of have the accountability of posting and remind myself to dance every day. And, but then, you know, I danced to a lot of oldies and a lot of just songs, I think a lot and like pop music. And I think watching someone who is obviously a weirdo publicly be like, I love Justin Bieber. I love Megan Trainer. I love Beyonce. Like, and with no apology, it's like not, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm like, these are my favorite songs. People are like, whoa, like those are my favorite songs. Um, and it also kind of reminds me of you being like, yeah, like I went to SAS Fest and then realized I could do this whole other thing. Mm-hmm. I feel really luck and I try not to take responsibility for it. I feel like my kind of like the way I channel the universal great spirit, if you will, is like I kind of just give people permission to do the thing that they already know how to do and probably love doing, but they just needed some weird other force to be like, you can totally, like you can also definitely do this thing. And so I think that's kind of what personal practice became was this weird little feed where people were like, whoa, like I want to move my body. Like I want to love pop music and not apologize for it. I want to say how I feel or whatever. And, you know, I also, I think it's important to know, and I, I'm kind of regret not putting this in my book about this project but is that I, I stayed anonymous for a really long time. Like I never, it was, I think it was almost, uh, almost a year of, of doing it that I never said my name. I never said where I lived. Um, so if you were to find it, not through have company, you know, the way it kind of invited a certain style of like commenting, like people commented on my clothes and my haircut and me almost as if I couldn't read it. Which was, it was actually really- quite, dis- I mean, it was kind of, at times I was kind of offended on your behalf because I was like, geez, yeah, yeah. like people are yeah. rude. Like if she wants to have short bangs, that's her own business. Like lay off, you know? And I, I mean, oh. you know, but I mean, so what was it like to read that? I mean, and you include this stuff in your book and we're going to get to the full explanation. of. But So were you read this stuff and just laugh? I mean, what would you do? Oh, I just- yeah, you just- <laughs> it's hilarious to me. It's incredible. I mean, I, I think, yeah, I think, you know, obviously if someone I maybe like really respected and knew had ever said something mean, I maybe would have like felt bad, but right. you know, I mean, these are mostly strangers. And again, because I'm not following anyone back, I'm not really trying to like build relationships with people necessarily who are following the project, which I think some people have their own opinions of. And which I also don't particularly care about because it was, you know, it was, again, it wasn't like for anyone in the way that, or maybe it was and I didn't know, or obvious or obviously it is. And I, and I, I don't know, but you know, I'm, I'm always, you know, the book I, I re, have read through the book a few times because I'm like, Oh man, I'm still trying to figure that one out. You know, it's like, I write in a way that I write, I joke that I write for my future self. Like when I read many my like sort of mentor just reminded me that I'm still on all of the lessons of my like first zine I ever wrote. Like maybe in 20 years, I'll understand whatever I wrote about in the last year, because I'm kind of just writing what I think I want to read maybe, or what I'm like trying to teach myself. I'm not like, Hey guys. So I figured this whole thing out, the whole being alive thing. I I got it. And I just want to tell everybody about it. You know, like that would be, that would be incredible. 
Did you ever jump into the comments or were you ever tempted to jump into the comments and say something? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, when it's like a million comments about my bangs or about (laughs) the way my pants fit, I generally wouldn't respond. But um, I love, I should, I remember this one time someone said like, Literally, I hope this girl figures out what she's doing because she looks crazy. And I commented, (laughs) I think I commented, or they were like, she obviously doesn't know what she's doing. Or someone please tell me what is going on here. She looks insane. You know, it's like something like that. And I just remember commenting back to them. And I was like, if you figure out what I'm doing, please tell me because I have no idea. (laughs) Like, it was just, you know, just funny. I was like... Yeah, man. Like, I don't know what the hell is going on either. So please, like, let's circle back. And like, if you can give me a download, that would be great. Because I have no idea, you know, and I think that's where I just think it's funny when people are like, my favorite is the comment of this girl looks like a cat having an exorcism. (laughs) I mean, that was just like, (laughs) nothing could mean more to me. I was like, yes, yes. This is that it does look like that today, doesn't it? You know, it's like people just think it's going to be mean, but I'm, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know how I would take it personally. So can you explain a little bit about when you set out to do your dancing every day as this part of your you know, personal practice, kind of explain your mindset and what you're actually trying to achieve and to help those folks at home that might be struggling a little bit to understand it. Post-college, I in fall of 2012, I started studying with a group of women, four of them. They are called the architects, and they teach and research a form of improvisation called compositional improvisation, which is basically improvisation for performance. So it's the idea that, you know, improvisation has been used as a tool forever in terms of like choreographing movement or like in a classroom setting, but they study it as like, they will do a 20 minute performance with nothing planned. The only thing that they know is that they will make a 20 minute dance. And so that's the framework that I'm have been within in the last five years. I go to their dance intensives. I consider them sort of my mentors and my teachers. And that is the style of dance that I also teach. Okay. So, so, so it lends to looking a little weird sometimes, you know, it's like there, I'm not necessarily trying to look put together and that's, and that's um, maybe that's a weird tangent, but, and it's also like, the point is like, it's my practice. And so I would get kind of caught up in that. Like, am I making a 15 second dance video or am I showing a 15 second snippet of my practice? Because, you know, a lot of, I can't deny that a lot of what came out of, you know, docu filming myself for two years has been making videos. I make a short video every day. You know, I make a short film every day. That's what I also do every day, which I forget sometimes, you know, it's like, I'm definitely playing with framing and lighting and am I outside or inside and do I, you know, it's rare. I've, I've never used a tripod. So also like either it's propped up on a stump somewhere or it's has a Mason jar behind it on a ledge, a window ledge. Um, so yeah, I think that's another thing to just tell people is, you know, that that's, and the reason I did it was just to dance more because I felt like I lived in a place where I didn't have as many collaborators as I wanted to. And I like 
there wasn't as many opportunities to take dance class every day. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to dance. I'm just going to figure out how to dance every day. And then the answer is you can with very little room if you want to. Well, and also that the, getting back to the, the part about you making videos every day. And that is something that, um, you know, for those people, other people might think, oh, she must have like a camera crew with her. Like there's people that are like, she's dancing. And then there's this whole, like, there's a couple people like holding up reflectors and, you know, making sure the camera's not moving around. And so you are just, you're doing this all yourself and no, you said no tripod and no um, tripod. not, I mean, just wherever it does that get problematic. What's the weirdest thing that you rigged up to try to like get a, the camera to, to, you know, to be in the right spot. I've definitely done some just like weird stuff in trees, you know, just like <laughs> climbed up some branches and like took a piece of grass and like tied my phone to a branch kind of thing. Um, <laughs> that's maybe the weirdest, but sometimes in those situations, I just end up putting it on the ground and then you just see a video of my feet or my like me from the waist down or something. Um, but lots of, lots of windowsills and you know, the, my car, I put it on top of my car sometimes if I like pull over somewhere and yeah, it was interesting. I mean, for the first, um, maybe eight months, I'm mostly in my live, my old living room of my old house in front of this like beautiful giant painting. And yeah, it was always, it was always just leaned up against the same Mason jar in that windowsill. So and so that shift was part of, um, I mean, you're st- kind of a shift in your life. It's, you know, the, the scene, scenery changed. The scenery changes. And that was a really hard part about making the book because, you know, I went through from the beginning and pretty much copy and pasted, you know, most many of the captions, which made the content for the book. And then, you know, went through and wrote down every place and every person. And it was... I was just sort of like, oh, this will be easy. It's just like the facts. I just have to go in and find the facts. And then I put the facts in the book. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, you're like, oh, my gosh, I dance in front of this painting almost every day. And then you see me in front of the painting less and then less and then less. And, you know, that was the home that John and I shared uh, in, in Michigan. And, yeah, and then I move out of, of that of that house of the house home that we shared. And so, yeah, it was just like a really intense process to like go back and like, and the way that we hold memories, like every, you know, I picked those songs every day based on how I was feeling. Mm -hmm. And so of course, when I like have to hear it back, when I'm like making the book was like, Oh, that day, you know, it's like, it all came back in a way that is different than just like, you know, I, I journal every day and often do not go back and read them, but I, I do it as like a kind of a brain dumping meditative practice. But if I do ever go back and read stuff, it's like, oh yeah, that kind of hurts. But there's something really different about watching your body in the space that you were grieving with the sound that you were listening to on mm-hmm. that exact day. That oh, was yeah. a really weird way to document my life. So yeah, making the book was certainly an emotional roller coaster but i'm glad i did it and now that the book is coming out i wonder what people are gonna people have been following it and maybe made some of those comments i wonder what they're gonna think now in retrospect i included comments anonymously in the book and i never would want like people to feel bad or something because i some of my 
best friends were like, girl, where'd you get those jeans? You know, it's like, (laughs) it's fine. In many ways, it's fine because I'm like putting my jeans on the internet. But yeah, to me, I rarely answered the question, where did you get that? Right. Every once in a while I would, because like, I'm often wearing clothes that my friends make. And so I do want people, you know, especially when I have this platform where so many people are watching and people are like, get that dress. I, it's like hard because I'm like, didn't you read the caption? This is about my feelings. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, that's what's kind of like happening in my head. Right. But then I'm like, well, uh, I guess, you know, this is where I got the dress, you know, and, but I tried to practice it in a way that I always went through the lens of, I don't owe anyone an answer. Right. And that felt healthy to me. And so that way, yeah, sometimes I would respond and I would be like, this is where I got it. But I never felt, I never let myself feel obligated to tell anybody where I got something. Oftentimes other people would pitch in because they would know where I got the dress and I would let them handle it. (laughs) You know, that would kind of happen a lot. It's like someone be like, Oh, her shirt's from gravel and gold or, Oh, her dress is from this place. Um, yeah, there were definitely times where it was like, really, you guys, like, we're going to turn this whole thing into my bangs. But, but it's funny because sometimes I would make little, um, captions that we were, I think there's a whole, there's a whole part that's like, I, I definitely talk about cutting my hair. You know, it's like, I, I invited some of it in and it's my own, it's my own fault. That's what I also joke. You know, it's like, I put myself on the internet for everyone to watch. Like, you know, there's no, I don't get to choose how they react. So there might be people thinking, Jennifer, just ask her, ask her about her bangs. You, you like to wear your, your bangs short. Why is that? It's so funny also that you're asking because I'm in this phase where I think I want to grow my bangs out. I mean, I've basically had these bangs pretty much my whole life. Like I've, I I kind of have the same haircut as like when I was three, like I've kind of always had short bangs. I don't have an answer. I'm sure there's some psychological reasoning behind being a person with bangs. I mean, part of it is I've just had them for so long and, and kept them. And I, I don't know. I think they're cute. And maybe that's why I have tiny bangs. Yeah. Um, I, I have, my bangs are always like, they part in the middle all the time. I've always had bangs except fine. for a really strange, I was about 25 and I decided I was going to wear my, like grow my bangs out. And I look at the, po- I just, it's hor It's a horrible look for me personally. Um, my forehead is like a landing pad. Um, it's like a, Oh, I'm nervous about that. So I'm just like, you know, um, but no, I think the short bangs solve a problem because they probably don't, they behave better when they're really short. They do. Well, that's the thing is like, I have an incredible cowlick in the middle that I, my bangs just start far enough back that I have shaped that I have trained them and shaped them in a way that they stay how they are supposed to stay. (laughs) So. You might start a trend now. All these people with short short hair. Uh, the trend has begun. Yeah, and then you... definitely hundreds of people have cut their bangs short because I mean, <laughs> and that's not that's not me trying to pat myself on the back. That's like <laughs> no. How do you know? Like DMs, are, I get of people uh, who are like, I cut my bangs like yours. I'm like, that's that's beautiful. <laughs> I'm really, I love it. Everybody get short bangs. Do they send you photos of the oh, bangs? Oh sure, yeah, of course, yeah. Oh definitely. my word. And then I you know. have, do you respond to all those? I, I, I respond to lots of messages. Even if it's just a heart emoji, I'm usually like, 
looks great. Like it only takes me two seconds. Right, I don't get right. that. Not like I have hundreds a day, but you know, yeah, I'll, I'll respond to people if they send me a direct message. Yeah, no, that's nice. Are, are people sending you dance videos back? Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. My favorite is people send me dance videos of their children, usually like listening to the personal practice Spotify playlist. And that is my favorite thing ever because I love children and I love when children dance. Well, children dance with wild abandon. And that is something that um, some of us never quite get back the same way, which is so that's that's pretty awesome. So so you do get the dance videos. Um, Yeah. So what is the most unusual thing? that you've the response you've gotten to the work you've put out there. I joke in the intro to my book that I have gone on some pretty successful dates from people sending me direct messages. Oh yes. I did want to ask uh, you about that. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I'm not <laughs> I listened to myself on a different podcast recently where I like, I, I never mind talking about John because he like, we have such a loving friendship and he is my ex husband. And I feel like it's like, I'm removed enough that it's like a nice, it's like a part of my, like the arc of my life and my story. But I'm like in this new place where I'm like, it was funny before we started and you were like, you know, you don't have to say anything you don't want to. I was like, no, I say everything. And that's my new thing. Like I would never someone I'm dating again because I I heard myself name someone I like was dating a few weeks ago like on a different podcast and I was like oh no like everyone is temporary that's my new god that sounded really dark like I'm jaded (laughs) I'm a young jaded young divorcee no but um yeah I I think or not just dates but like you know just a lot of intimate relationships with collaborators or people, you know, who I met, who I think found me on Instagram and were like, hi, like, I really like what you're doing. And I was like, whoa, thank you. Cool. Like want to hang out. And, and that was, that's just from social media in general. You know, that's how I ran my residency was like my residence. You know, I never, I never had a a romantic relationship with a resident. So this is maybe a bad metaphor or whatever, but it felt like online dating a little bit. Like people would apply. I would like look at them on the internet, like look at their work, look at their Instagram, like decide if I felt like I'd want to hang out with them for nine days and then invite them to live in the back of my store. You know? So I think that's been just like an incredible part of social media is I have met so many of my very best friends through both personal practice and just having an Instagram feed. Um, I, I mean, the New York Times thing was maybe actually the most unusual thing <laughs> that has ever happened. Maybe I would like to say. So um, what do you know about how the reporter found you? Yeah. I mean, Shaban literally just follows personal practice on Instagram <laughs> and bought my book. And I have read her writing in the New York Times and loved it. And so she tagged the book on Instagram. I saw it. I sent her a message and was like, well, like, thanks so much for posting my book. I recently read one of your article, like with no expectation. I wasn't like trying to be like, write about me. I was just like, Hey, I like really like your writing. Um, and thanks for posting about my book. She was like, you're welcome. The end. And then a couple days later, she sent me a message and was like, Hey, like I kind of need a fast answer. I'm like in my editorial meeting, would you be open to me interviewing you about personal practice in your book for the New York times? And I was like, 
try to play it cool, but I'm like, yes, anytime. Yes, of course. Yes. I love you. Yes. Let us speak to each other. (laughs) But yeah. Uh, Yeah. Sounds great. Um, And she was really, really sweet and nice, easy to talk to and asked really good questions. I kind of wish that, I mean, I love the format. I'm obviously I have a podcast and I love the format of a podcast because the only thing that made me like her interview was great and it was edited fine and nicely, but like we talked for a long time and I feel like we talked about a lot of other really good stuff that you don't, you know, I wish there could be like the director's cut or like the extended version, or I wish I would have just recorded our conversation. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, you know, we go into like, why do you love Justin Bieber? You know, kind of like these funny tangents. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't ask you that. I just kind of let it go. But um, why do you like yeah. Justin Bieber? What is it about him? Or the Biebs? I love, so great. You know, I, yeah, I don't, I, and I said this to, uh, the, to her also, I, you know, I don't necessarily, in the way that like there are other pop stars that I really love and respect their like life and political views, like Beyonce, like, Solange, I guess just them, just the Noel sisters. Um, <laughs> like I, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, I think are making like radical, interesting work within the pop community. I don't think that Justin Bieber is doing that, but I love Justin Bieber because I think that he makes just like really incredible dance songs that make people not sad. You know, I feel like I'm someone who definitely struggles with depression and anxiety and when I just put some Bieber on you know it's like I'm not thinking about anything other than Bieber and you know I think he's really attractive I I think he's really hot um he makes me feel like a young teen he makes me feel youthful I like get giggly and excited when I think about him and he's a great dancer I just I think he's a great pop star I also think oh the other thing I have a I have a tattoo of Justin Bieber it is a drawing of him crying and I got it because I also think we live in a world where men have a really hard time accessing their emotions and they have a hard time crying and Justin Bieber cries on stage when he is talking about how grateful he is he cries in interviews with Diane Sawyer like Justin Bieber is not afraid to cry publicly and I wish that more men would feel okay crying publicly and so I celebrate Bieber for being a man of his public emotions so what was that like to have a New York Times photographer out to do a photo shoot? Oh, my God. It was so fun. We're like friends now. That's really she, cool. Yeah. I mean, the New York Times has photographers all over. Oh, of course. You know, she, lives, she lives in Alameda, which is like a little island, very cute little island off of sort of just southwest of Oakland in between Oakland and San Francisco. And so, yeah, she came up for the day and we just like hung out and like hiked all day. We talked about how much we love Beyonce and she took, her name is Amy Herity for those who are listening. And, and like, I, I was a little nervous. I didn't look at her work before she came. Cause I was like, what if it's like, not really my vibe, I can't like pick who's going to come. And then I like started looking at her work and her Instagram and her website. And she is so incredible. And she just really captured my whole spirit and my, and this place that I live now, which has really been just such a healing place for me to process relationships ending and my move and leaving Michigan. And it was such a great place to finish the book and to put the book out. And yeah, it was, we had a really fun, a really fun day. And we're going to, I think we're going to like keep collaborating. We're like, we should make dance films together. And so it was a very beautiful day that we got to have together how's your life changed 
since is there any is there any uh, immediate feedback or anything? What has happened since this article dropped? Yeah. It's a big deal to be in the New York Times. Like it's definitely a strange like marker of time. I am really lucky. I live in a in a small cabin alone. And I live on the land of John Cordy, who is in his early 80s. And John is an Academy Award-winning documentary filmmaker who sort of lives a quiet life here. He won this the Oscar in the 80s for this incredible film called Who Are the DeVolts and Why Do They Have 19 Kids? And he made a lot of other really weird films. He has an Emmy. He's just like the most humble, one of the most humble, beautiful people I have ever met. And we were talking in the driveway today and he kind of like shuffles slowly over to me and he's like, I'm, I'm so excited to see you in the New York times. You know, I was trying to remember the first time I was in the New York times and I was 29 years old too. And that like launched my whole career. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Wow. Like this. Oh, right. Like this is a big moment in my career as a writer and as a dancer. And, you know, I, I, like I live in this town in this place that's sort of surrounded with other elders like John. And that is also part of why I moved here was to be around other people who do kind of what I do and choose to live in this small rural place. But, um, you know, my professors at U of M reached out to me about coming to visit and maybe teach for like a week next fall or, you know, come to the, a comp class in a couple weeks. And, you know, other people have asked to interview me and talk about me. I sold a lot of books, which awesome. is also cool. Um, and I think just it gave like more context to the project. And yeah, I don't know. It's it it it, it made me realize like I maybe need I think there's a scary moment in lots of people's career, I would assume that, or guess where you kind of have to step into like, okay, I need help. Like I, you know, I'm not going to sit in my cabin and ship 300 books a day because I have other books to write. I have other things to do. I, and like, I can't keep up with my emails at this point. And that all just feels really weird to say. And I also want to like honor that. And I want to be of service to my practice and to people who want to read what I have to write. And I'm not, I can't really be of service to them if I keep trying to like do all of the jobs that mm -hmm. are required to make, to do what I'm doing. So maybe that's the weirdest part that feels kind of awkward to talk about. And I'm kind of like still under trying to figure out the language for it because in this moment I like literally hauled many boxes of books to the post office today. You know, that is, that is what my life looks like today, mm -hmm. but I, you know, I and help me put them in the envelope. So it's like slowly like figuring it out. But, and I think I was, I was already on that trajectory, but I think the article just sort of like pushed it a little bit harder and faster in a way that maybe I needed. And was, and I, I hope I'm ready for, so, yeah. Well, I think you're ready for it. Yeah. Thanks. It, things like <laughs> things kind of line up when they're supposed to. Yeah, I, mean, I really yes. firmly believe that, that, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's, and so how many books did you print and are you on your second printing yet? You know, I I'm using a print on demand website. I had my incredible friend, Richard Warenberg designed and laid out my book. And then I'm, I'm using something that makes it so I can just order books as they come, which is a really affordable way to self publish. And if you're 
someone listening and looking to do that, I encourage you to just basically Google print on demand and you can find a lot of really good ones that are, you can, they're printed here in the U S and, um, but the first run, yeah, I printed a thousand and, and have gone, gone through them. So awesome. congratulations. So- That's awesome. Thanks. Yeah. It's a nice marker. So yeah. And, and so yeah, just still sort of going, coming as they come, I've been ordering more. So yeah. That's great. And do you care to share which service you used? Yeah, no, I don't mind sharing. I I used Create Space. Okay, I've not um, heard of that one. Yeah, yeah. I, and there's like my friend Sarah who makes the Many Moons workbook. I think she used one called like Lulu. Yeah, I've heard of um, Lulu. Like, yep. Okay. Um, but I have had Create Space does is affiliated with Amazon, so you can. I don't want to unpack that on this podcast. Right. Episode, right. You, right. I, I mean, that's the thing that people have to like have their own process. Right. They can just decide that. if that feels right. right for them. Yes. Um, but for me and for this project, it felt right. And um, I'm working on another book right now that comes out next fall and I'm, and it's being, it's being published by a publisher and it's been exciting to be kind of doing both sides at the same time like cool this is what it feels like to self-publish a book and this is what it feels like to have the full support of like an editor and a major publishing company and you know I will never I will never ship one of those books when it comes out next fall that will not be my job anymore and so it's there's part of me that like well I I love shipping you know it's like it's hard I'm like a zine maker I'm a letter writer I love you know I want to I want to like typewrite everybody's label but that would be literally impossible so you know there's I kind of I come from this like super punk DIY world where we like send mail to each other so it's I think that's something I'm always kind of like trying to be okay letting go of a little bit so and and if you want to put a little plug in for the book that you're you're actually working on um so people can look forward to that so tell us a little bit about that yeah so two years ago kind of right before our personal practice started in May of 2015, I self-published a, a little zine and workbook, which which exists right now. It'll exist through the end of the year um, called How to Not Always Be Working. And it was kind of birthed out of, um, I'm a knitter and knitting is sort of my, uh, is now, but then really was sort of my like hobby my like thing that I did to not work and then I started carrying yarn at half company and then I was like wait knitting is my job now and I was like oh no everything is my job now and I like couldn't figure out how to not always be working so I wrote a small zine and so coming out next fall um, with William Morrow which is an imprint of HarperCollins um, how to not always be working is an expanded nine chapter book with a lot of really rad contributors and I'm so excited about it. It's sort of this like spiritual and practical toolkit for exactly what you were just talking about. Unplugging the internet, turning your phone off, going outside, um, just like tools and structures to, you know, sort of engage in a little bit of a better work-life balance, specifically in a world where we are just inundated with technology. So. Is there anything else you want to say to the folks at home, the, just the listeners out there, um, you know, whether they're just hearing about you today for the first time or they've been following along with your personal practice? Um, anything you want to say to them about maybe if they're on the verge of like kicking off their next project or maybe it's their very first project. Maybe they've never done mm-hmm. something just for themselves. 
that was artistic. What, what advice do you have? Something I learned so much from my little brother, Sam, who he has a band called Radiator Hospital. And a, year, a couple of years ago, he got an incredible review in Rolling Stone magazine. And, you know, and he's a kid who like makes tapes in his bedroom in Philly, you know, and, and I remember, and I feel a little bit similarly about my own path and projects that Sam and I have sort of followed this similar trajectory of not trying to, I think people ask a lot, a a common question is how do I get so many followers? And I think the point is like, I never have tried, I've never tried to get followers. I've just done my work. I just show up to my work. And I'm, and I learned that from Sam. Cause even I was like, Sam, how did you get in Rolling Stone? <laughs> like you're a punk who makes tapes like what? And he was like, you know, somebody who works there got my tape and they loved it. And I, so I guess I just will keep making my tapes. And that is just so resonates with me so much is like, I think you know, if you're on the verge of making something is to just focus on your work and why you make it and why it brings you joy. Because, you know, I dance every day because it, it, it's how I figure stuff out. And yeah, I think there's like a letting go of what the outcome is. It's like being, be like launch your project with, I mean, it's selfish in many ways. You know, my art practice makes me feel good. It's how I process the world out an expectation of how it will land. And it will probably be pretty good. So that's my advice. Well, thank you so much. You have a lovely evening. Thanks so much. Well, a special thanks to Marley for being a guest on the show. I really appreciated a chance to get to talk to her about her creative life and just the excitement in her life recently with all the attention she's received from her Instagram accounts. One of the takeaways here, when she talks about at the end of the interview, when she talked about her brother, her and her brother kind of having that same approach to doing what they do. They just do what they do. They're not trying to contort themselves into something they're not get a bunch of attention for it. I think sometimes a lot of people sit down and they look at Instagram like it's this big strategy. And I mean, it is for a lot of people. It's very strategic. People buy followers, people go on there and like stuff they really don't like to try to get people to like their stuff. And I mean, that's just kind of insane when you think about it. It makes a whole lot more sense just to kind of, you know, just to live your life, be authentic and like what you like. The thing to think about is, you know, our time is our most valuable commodity. It's more important than money, even though it might not seem like it. Um, And since we don't have an infinite amount of time, it makes more sense to just spend that energy and time on creating work that we want to create. Maybe worry a little bit less about what people think about it. So over at craftsanity.com, I have links to Marley and all her online venues where you can find her and you can find information about her book. She will be in Grand Rapids teaching a workshop September 5th from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Wealthy Theater Annex in Grand Rapids. So you can head over there and you can sign up for that class. There's more information on her website about that, too. Uh, She's also having a hometown book release party, which is really cool. She's going to be at uh, the Sparrows Coffee Tea and Newsstand on Wealthy Street in Grand Rapids. Start at 6 on Sunday, September 10th. And she'll be signing copies of Sacred Shift. So if you're local and you want to say hi, you can stop in then. And also, uh, as she mentioned, she has a book coming out in 2018. 
the How to Not Always Be Working book, and that's based on a zine that is still available. If you go on her website and look in her shop, I believe she still has copies of that available. I think she's had through the end of the year. So you can still support that. Uh, once again, I'd like to thank my podcast sponsors for helping me keep this show going. I'm going to have a couple things coming up here that I'd like to invite you local folks to. I'm going to be vending and demonstrating uh, some weaving techniques on my new loom collection from 5 to 8 p.m. Thursday, September 7th at Virtue Cider in Fenville, Michigan. So you can come and see me there. Last time I was there, I actually got rained out. I wasn't even completely set up with my, my booth was like, I was almost done setting up. My daughter, Amelia, and I were there, and it started raining so hard. It was, like, coming sideways into the booth, and I have wooden looms, so I was, like, kind of freaked out. So I lowered my little easy up all the way down, like, as low as I could, and I kind of crouched down under it. My daughter jumped in the van, and we kind of just rode it out until the rain stopped, and then... I looked around, my dress was like just, I was like soaked and I had covered up all my looms with, with things like I could grab like plastic bags and like tarps and stuff. And I was like, this is insane. I looked like a drowned rat and I was worried that if it rained again, that I would re- I would ruin the looms because they're really not made for outdoor, like torrential rain use. They are definitely made for outdoor use, but not in adverse conditions. I weave outside all the time. I just don't leave them there overnight. So I packed it up and I'm going to try this again. <laughs> I mean, it's a cute venue. I mean, it's so cute. Virtue Cider is it just it's a farm setting. They have sheep. It's super cute and I I I need to make a go of this and have it work. So, I'm going back, going to try again. And of course, those of you who are further away, you can always check out the looms in the Etsy shop. It's craftsanity.etsy.com. I'm really, really, really happy because since my last podcast, I've actually come out with some new looms. So I had that whole Craft Sanity collection that makes everything from infant to adult size hats. And then I have a stocking cap hat loom that makes those really pointy stocking caps that they're slightly obnoxious, um, but I absolutely love them. They'd be great on the ski slope. I don't ski, so I'm just going to wear them around town, like walking and running but um i also have the blanket and rug looms and scarf looms and cowl looms and now i also have circular looms i've been weaving on cardboard for so many years and like hangers like coat hangers and i'm just like you know i'm a grown woman with a loom business this is ridiculous i really should you know like up my game and my supplies in this area and so uh, i started laser cutting those and that's really fun and then from there I also have a bracelet loom in two sizes, and it's really like a mini tapestry loom, because honestly, I'll probably end up doing more tapestry work on that than bracelet work, but, you know, I I did make a bracelet right away, and I like to wear that around. It's really fantastic. And then, um, since then, though, I continue to make looms, and I have a new set of portable looms that I will hopefully be rolling out next week at Virtue Cider. I am the vice president of the Woodland Weavers and Spinners Guild, Uh, this year. I'm really going to make an effort to just welcome more people to the guild. Our guild is growing and we have a meeting coming up on Tuesday, September 5th. And um, I'll have a link on my website. So you can click that for details on where it's going to be and what time it is and all that good stuff. And I just want to give a little shout out. I almost forgot to talk about the Michigan Fiber Festival. 
I am still kind of blown away by how overwhelming in a good way that was. I met a lot of great people. I got to talk to a lot of people who used to read my column when I was an art and craft writer for the Grampus Press. And that was really great to get to reconnect with those folks. I taught a couple classes and that was fun. We made cowls and mini cowls and it was really great. It's kind of amazing like how much work we can get done in a very short amount of time in a mini session. So that was really cool. And uh, people bought my looms and that, that was just really awesome. Speaking of shows, there is a really cool one that is accepting applications now for their December 1st through 3rd Detroit Urban Craft Fair. I've done this show once before. It's a really good one. So if you're looking for a show that you can move a lot of product at and meet a lot of cool people, That's a good one to try out. So you can Google it, Detroit Urban Craft Fair, and it'll take you to the website where you can find an application. And who knows, maybe I'll see you there. All right, I better get back to work, and I will be back soon with another show. Feel free to send me your ideas. You can send those to jennifer at craftsanity.com. And if you want to sponsor an upcoming show, by all means, get in touch. I'll be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, Craft Sanity, my friends, it works for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Craft Sanity Podcast. To support the show, click the Patreon link at CraftSanity.com to donate $1 a month or buy a handmade loom or magazine at CraftSanity.etsy.com. Same time next week, we'll be craft.